necessarily so. Come on. It ain't necessarily so. The things that you love to read in that Bible, they ain't necessarily so. Okay, Freddie, let's go. Let's go, Freddie Ballantyne. My goodness. Welcome to Hook, Push, and Pray. I'm your host, Nicholas Brownlee, and this is an opera shop talking podcast. And that is my very good buddy, Freddie. I know him as Freddie. Others may know him as Frederick. Ooh, so official. Ballantyne, um, ripping apart Sporting Life, which just opened, of course, Poor Game Best, to immense critical acclaim uh and i know that because I'm, I'm just sitting here with tabs open reading all the reviews of it from the opening night um uh what a spectacle what an incredible thing um so just thrilled thrilled to to see that show come to life on the met stage and for the met to to put that on opening night and to make it such a big event for me as an opera singer i'm like this is it like this is the game this is what we got to be doing so um how exciting for uh for Freddie, who is just an amazing guy and a great friend. So I'm, I'm thrilled for you, Freddie. Uh, you sound great. And uh, yeah, everyone who was there was just like, you know, it's one of those things where like, like Porgy and Bess, Porgy and Bess at the Met took over the internet in the opera world for a weekend. Like that's how this happened. Like that's how we do this. Like so we, that I, I think that's how we, you know, tick tick the meter forward. That's how we move life uh, in, a, in a different direction. It's, it's, or move opera in a different direction. Lord, I don't even want to begin with life. If we can't fix opera, what are we going to do about life? But um, So it's so funny to see Freddie, who, by the way, didn't wear an, a shirt under his suit to opening night in classic Freddie form. It's so crazy to see like Freddie like, Freddie, you're the best, and I, I, and so he's like growing into himself, and he's becoming this real star who we, who we always knew he would be, and it's so interesting because when I first met Freddie, he was a baritone, and uh, and he sang, he sang, uh, uh Tonsleet, and this is in 2012, right, uh, 2011, holy cow, when he sang Tonsleet, and we were all like, yeah, that's the greatest Tonsleet we've ever heard, like by a tenor. <laughs> And then he came, and he came to Rice, and he tra- and he and he switched, and we were, I was there during that whole transition. It was wild, and um, uh, you know, Freddie's getting a lot of love right now. He's in the New Yorker. He's on the front page. He's feeling himself. So, Freddie, this is my attempt to bring you back down to earth. We all went to grad school together, and Freddie is. Uh, if you want Freddie to be somewhere at one o'clock, you should tell him to be there at eleven thirty. Like he just Freddie's on Freddie time, and I, I love that about him. But in grad school, we would be all at his apartment. He and Calvin's apartment. He and Calvin were roommates. And uh, shout out to Calvin, man. How are you? Um, so we were all roommates, and, and or they were roommates. And we'd go over to to his apartment, and we'd all be pre gaming, you know, like grad school vibes. You know what I mean? And we'd be having this great time. And uh, it would be like eleven thirty. Like it's time to like exit. If we're going out tonight, we're going out. Otherwise, like put on Netflix and pour shots. You know what I mean? You know that weird that weird moment where you're like, we're either going out. Or I'm putting shorts on and we're staying in. 
And we would be like, okay, it's time to go. And Freddie would go, okay, let me hop in the shower. Not like, let me put my shoes on. Not like, let me let me go change shirts. He's like, let me begin my process of getting ready to get out of the house. So I have distinct memories of us leaving with Freddie, like running to catch the car while he was putting his clothes still on. Oh, my God. Oh, grad school was hard and miserable, but Freddie made it better. Uh, and I appreciate that, Freddie. You're the best. Um, so I'm so excited to be back. Uh, so thrilling to be back. I, it has been months since, since an episode. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's a lot of, of different things that go into that. Uh, for one, I've just been on the road. Like it's, it's, as I'm talking to you right now, as I'm recording this, it's September 24th. Um, I haven't been home since June 12th. Same suitcase. I'm running out of clothes. Uh, forgot that Labor Day was going to pass and all white is off limits now. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, um, so it's been it's been really gnarly, dude. Like, again, it's the best. Being on the road is the best. But boy, it is the worst sometimes. Um, so I've just been sort of coping with that, learning with that. Um, we were we were at Bard this summer, Jen and I both singing uh, in a great production of Das Funde de Heliana. You should go listen to that music if you don't know it by Corn Gold. Um, but we were there, and we were with the in-laws, and Maddie was there, and then we came, and then we went to Alabama for like four days, and then we came straight out to LA, and we started doing this really intricate new bohème of Barry Kosky's, which is like the hardest rehearsal process I've ever. Like it's bohème, it's Colline, like you know what I mean. You know what I mean, right? It's not Dutchman. But, like, we were doing, like, serious sessions, and it's really intense staging, and I was, like, sort of spinning out and spiraling out and feeling really overwhelmed, and I just needed to be home, and I overbooked myself. And you just, the the, the sort of the first thing that goes are the extracurricular things because you're just trying to, like, get through it. You know what I mean? You're just trying to, like, learn the next thing. So uh, we are now back on a weekly schedule because um, – that's what I want to do, and that's what I love doing. So we have a lot of interviews already done, uh, which makes it a lot easier on me because then I just record the intros and get them out. So having done all that housekeeping, uh, you might be new to us. Five minutes in, I'm going to welcome the new viewers. Yeah, so I don't think that's like super podcast 101, but like you lean in, you know what I mean? Um, so I would like to welcome all the, the new people who are maybe here because of an Opera League affiliation or because of an LA Opera affiliation or because you were just interested in hearing three guys on a panel that are super famous and me try to like talk over them, which doesn't go very well. Um, but regardless of why you're here, I, I would like to welcome you. This is, this is like I said, my, my podcast, Hook, Push, and Pray. And uh, I started this podcast with a, lot of, with a lot of lofty intentions, and I want to keep them there. Um, it started to sort of change the dynamic of opera and opera singers and to help young singers transition from young artist to the real world, which is basically impossible. And so many people get left in the cracks um, and, and don't realize like Germany is not just an option. It's a very real one. And how do you really do that? Because so many people will tell you to go there and just tell you to land in Bremen and figure it out. And, and that's just not true. So practical tips for helping singers. Um, it has slowly morphed into more of an interview style podcast. I have interviews with a lot of a lot of singers in the business, a lot of directors. I, I've interviewed some some stagehands coming up and like how opera works 
in a way that even singers don't even know, like what goes on in those tech meetings when we get released, you know? Um, so, and sometimes you might not want to know what's going on in those tech meetings. Um, so that's sort of the, the thing. That's like what the podcast is about. Thank you for, for joining us. Today's episode is, uh, for me, it's, it's, it, it is a seminal, it's huge. It's a huge thing because we were able to, um, do a live taping of the podcast and the way it sort of worked is a few months ago, Martin Jimenez, who's the sound guy, uh, who's one of the sound technicians at LA Opera, but he's into all these weird projects, and he's just a really trippy, awesome dude. And he was like, dude, what if what if you did like a joint thing with the Opera League at LA Opera, which is affiliated with LA Opera? And what if you, they like to do like cool seminars, you know, they have Peter Caceres come in and speak or whatever directors direct in the show. What if you did a live taping of that podcast? And of course, I was like, "Oh, that would so much would go into that, and that would never happen." And there's that weird thing where, like, you almost don't want it to happen because you don't want to be vulnerable enough to say, "Like, oh no, I'm scared. I'm scared of that." Like, what? Like, if Christopher Kelsch is on the panel, like, I can't keep up with him. But, but I'm reading. It's right here on the desk next to me. Uh, Jennifer bought me Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. Uh, so I'm leaning in to vulnerability. And so uh, I said, yeah, let's do it. And, and next thing you know, it happened. And we had a date and we had a crowd and everything. Um, and so I hope you enjoy today. It's a little bit different than normal. Um, so uh, before I get to who the panel guests are, I, w- I definitely want to say a huge thank you to Todd Calvin at the Opera League, who was amazingly instrumental in making this happen, to Martine, who co-produced it and uh, who ran the sound for it. We had four mics. We had... Uh, we had an amazing, uh, we had a, he just, he just went over and beyond the call of duty. And I really appreciate that. And of course the opera league for funding it, it which was incredible. We had a ton of people show up. We had young people show up, which was thrilling. Um, shout out to pop, uh, Pacific opera project. They had a, a bunch of their, um, young people came out. Um, the opera league came out, the opera, the Western region people came out. Like I was pulling from all different kinds of, uh, pools to make this happen. And it did. And it was, it was fantastic. Um, so the panel, I, I'm not going to give you the whole podcast, right? I'm not going to give you or the whole recording. Uh, you don't need to hear me nervously, frantically talking like really fast. And I'm like, oh, we're here today. <laughs> like doing crazy stuff because I'm a crazy person. Um, so I won't give you all that. So I'll introduce the panel to you now and then I'll cut to the podcast uh, to save you from my my rambling. Although I'm sort of rambling now. So like, what am I really saving you for? If you stayed till now and you haven't fast forwarded, like bravo, like I'm proud of you. Like stick it out, stick it out for me. Um, so Christopher Kelsch is on the panel. Of course, he's the CEO of LA Opera. Um, very instrumental in bringing Barry Kosky to America, which the world needed. Um, LA Opera is sort of the redheaded stepchild. Maybe it's because it's my artistic home and I love it so much, but it's sort of the redheaded stepchild. I resemble that remark uh, of the opera world in that it does do new stuff. Like we don't, like this year we're doing a Barry Kosky Bohem. Uh, we're doing a Eurydice new production, brand new, Matt O'Coin, brand new, uh, uh, brand new opera. And we, in my tenure here as a young artist, I would always notice like, man, we do trippy, weird stuff for America. Um, and maybe it's because we're so young or maybe it's because we're in Los Angeles. Maybe it's because our donor base is open to it, whatever the reason. Um, but, but it was interesting to talk to Christopher because a man who's so instrumental in bringing so many things, 
so many cool new productions, so many cool new pieces to L.A. opera that aren't being done in the States, kind of defend redoing masterpieces. That was so fascinating to me to see where he fell on that spectrum. Uh, the other person on the panel is uh, uh, two other people. The other person, um, Joshua Winograde, who is Josh Winograde, who is um, – was my direct boss at the Young Artist Program, and now he's head of all artistic at LA Opera. Um, he's head of he heads their main stage stuff. He casts he casts those shows. He decides on seasons, and then from there he also um, chooses the projects that they do in their off grand series, which is where like Beth Morrison projects and weird trippy awesome stuff comes into play. Like, uh, and then you get a great piece like Dog Days. Um, or Prism, you know, Prism is blowing up, you know, and so that's, that's Josh, like, that's Josh's vision, um, and the third person on the panel, uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world ever of all time is Paul Curran, uh, Paul Curran is a, a director, a Scottish director, but he's done everything, he was the general director at Norwegian Opera and Ballet, he was, uh, from 2007 to 2011, he, speaks 17 and a half languages. I mean, he's every language in the world he speaks. He's extraordinary. He did the HD Donna, uh, Donna Del Lago at the Met with Joyce Deasy and like unbelievable. He's, he's unreal. He was our acting teacher in the Young Artist Program. Can you imagine? And like a, a quick Paul Curran story because I got time. I want to keep this under 15. We, uh, <laughs> Paul came in as our acting teacher and of course I'm such a singer singer. I'm like, oh, sure, another acting teacher. Great. What's he going to tell us? Motivation. I'm just worried about this E flat. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to turn it? Am I not? Like, screw that. And so he walked in with act three of Bohem with just the Nico Castell libretto. Right. And, uh, and, and I roll, I remember rolling my eyes so hard. I mean, I'm respectful, but rolling my eyes so hard. Like, what's this dude going to tell us about act three of Bohem? I know act three of Bohem note for note. I'm, I know everything. Um, I'm super joy to be around. And, and he, and, 20 minutes into it, every single person at the table was weeping, weeping. He was like, have you ever thought about how far she had to walk to get to that gate? And why was she walking? And you're just like, it's this, this, he asked the perfect, simple questions that touch the deepest soul-filled part of you. Um, and so Paul continues that awesomeness on this podcast, and he has a lot of great things to say. So... Um, I hope you enjoy this. This is a little bit different again. Um, the first 15 minutes are me just trying to get my footing to have the guts to interrupt Christopher Kelsch in the middle of speaking and tell him I think he's wrong. Uh, that still wasn't easy by the end of it, but I think I have more of the hang of it. We will be doing more of these. These panel discussions this is one of the best nights of my opera life, off stage or on stage. I mean, it was thrilling to me um, to to be able to sort of speak honestly and openly to three people who are directly influencing the business. That's dope af, and that was awesome. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this intro. Um, and thank you again to the Opera League and Martine for making this happen. I hope you enjoy this as, God, I had so much fun. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Peace, love, sing well.
So here's the deal. This is how podcasts work, and we're about to jump off into it, so just buckle up. Uh, podcast is a little bit different than your normal panel discussion. Um, colorful words are, are welcomed. If you don't feel comfortable, don't. Um, it, it's, totally, it's totally fair game, and a, I would like it to be more of a discussion because that's sort of the general idea of a podcast. It's not, I throw one question to one person and we all answer it. Um, at the end of this, we'll do this for 45 minutes, it will go by screaming fast, and we'll all think, what happened? Um, and hopefully it'll be good content. And then uh, after that, we will do a, 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 about a 10 or 15 minute Q&A where I will walk around with the mic and you get a chance, the rare opportunity to ask these three men, three of the most important men in the opera world today, your, your raging intense questions. Um, so I look forward to that. So, hey, hey fellas. Wow. These are all my bosses. Okay, here we go. Woo. So. I want to start. By, I want to start by this because I think this is See, benevolent yeah. overlords, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna yeah, say I've heard yeah. you interview some really scary people. I won't say who. Right. I think we're like three pussycats compared. That to... is true. That is true. I did have. I did interview one person who uh, sort of ended up interviewing me, uh, which happens. But but okay. So the whole idea of this podcast, the, the fun title was "Wanted Dead or Alive: How to Reinforce Opera's Presence in the Coming Decades Without Killing What Makes It Special." Uh, I came up with it all on my own. You know, I try my best, but we, I'm interested in just that last part first. What, what makes opera special? What makes opera special? Christopher has a really great way of explaining this, so I'm going to ask him to start. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, the way, the way that I think about it is it's one of the only art forms uh, in which it's possible. Uh, it's a forum to explore the outer and inexpressible reaches of the human condition. It's an art form that requires hyperbole. Um, and in a world in which we look to kind of tamp down those emotions, those feelings, uh, I find it to be an incredible arena of uh, catharsis in which you can explore um, the most extreme aspects of, of the human condition. That's what makes it special to me. And you do it um, uh, live is really important to me. Um, and you do it by attracting people who have uh, superhuman abilities and talents. And I would say um, that what I love about it is uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge theater fan and musical theater fan and symphony fan and ballet. But I think that what opera has um, over those is uh, when it nails it, it nails it so intensely that it's theater on a different level than anything else. Um, and I think maybe that has to do with all those elements coming together, the fact that there's this overwhelming, um, overwhelming of all the senses, the visual, the aural, um, and, uh, you know, but for me, uh, the stakes are the highest in opera for any, for any other performing arts because when it gets it right, it gets it so right. I feel utterly redundant because they've just said everything I was right. thinking, really. Right. But <laughs> I'm not sure of an opinion. Um, I agree. It's absolutely the, as Wagner calls it, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the altogether artistic collected work. And what Christopher said, I think, absolutely hits the nail on the head. 
and also uh, what uh, Josh was just saying about when it gets it right. Think of something as simple as the Tristan chord, the opening of Tristan. When you get to that chord, and the next note after, I think, is an A, that A is just in a massive theater There's just one oboe playing an A. And somehow you feel as if your soul has been broken into. Opera can do that more than a ballet, than a symphony, than everything, because you are watching almost a 3D experience in that it is the visual picture, it is the actor, it is the music, it is the power, the enormous human power of the human voice. That's the big difference in opera, I think, is that adding all those together with the thing that all of us have, which is a voice, adds it up in a, in a very, very particular way. But part of, sorry, but part, yeah, I mean, buried in all this, I think, is the sense of real danger. I mean, th there, there are so many tops spinning on top of so many tops, and I think the audience often senses that the whole thing could either collapse under its own weight, or that if it gets slightly out of sync, there, there could very well be a train wreck, which makes it a, a real adrenaline rush for both the people on stage, and then I think that that translates to the people uh, within the audience. I didn't know you directed operas as well, because yeah. that's exactly how it feels. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you just don't know, you don't know if it's really going to hold together. That tension, that moment of that, I would call it ephemeral experience, an experience that can come and can certainly go. It isn't an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that is repeated exactly the same way, exactly the same thing every night, and that is in the book when the assistant director picks up an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, they are told, the actor is told, you will make this emotion at this point and you will do this and you will do that. You can't do that in an opera because opera singers, artists have opinions. They have different moods. They, they interpret roles time and time again. And so you are always mi mixing a cake in a different way. And you never know really how it's gonna happen until on that opening night, the curtain goes up. Or as happened to me once, didn't go up. Well, I, I think I think that, that I think that's obviously those are all really well spoken, amazing points. Um, but I, I, anything that can succeed in such an extraordinary way can also fail in an equally extraordinary way. And so, uh, you know, as the singer part of this panel, uh, Josh, you can uh, attest to this as well. I'm sure Christopher and Paul could have sung if they wanted to. Um, but it, it, it's like it's it is it is thrilling to 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 sort of see us all doing it. And like, I, I tell everyone like, like if, you wanna, if you wanna really know how hard it is to be an opera singer, you think about Bohem, we're doing Bohem here. And like if the singer, like forget the production, forget all the other stuff on top of it. If the singer just doesn't, 15 minutes into the show, he has to sing this high C, which is a feat of human extraordinaryism that we can't even, I mean, the tension he's putting on his throat, the athletic feat that that is to sing a high C, just here in this practice room alone, forget 3,000 people in the audience, you know, 15 minutes into the show, if that C doesn't go well, the show suffers uh, immensely. Everyone's sort of let down a little bit. Now, so my question then becomes, you know, innovation, right? That's what we're all talking about. We all wanna innovate, we wanna change, we wanna move forward, we wanna, we wanna uh, improve upon opera. Is, that, is this, burden of having something that could fail so extraordinary, what holds us back from that? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think th there, I'm 25 years into this. Um, 
And I know from history that there were hundreds of years behind that in which people were prognosticating the end of the art form because of its unlikeliness, because of its expense, because of the dwindling audience, because of the changing demographics of the audience. There's something about the opera community that is fetishizes this kind of self-flagellation. Innovation is, is not an end into itself. You know, the, we, have, we have two responsibilities. One is that we, we are stewards of a tradition and, and the, the art form only works in performance, right? So that there's these masterpieces that have to be interpreted and reinterpreted and they should, be, they should do so in a way that feels idiomatic to the time and place in which they're being interpreted. But, but it's essential that, they, that, they, that the canon is, is part of that. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that there are new audiences and tastes change over time. I mean, we see this just in our own lifetime, the, the incredible kind of uh, attention to Baroque opera, which would have seemed like science fiction. And then suddenly all these bel canto masterworks come into place based on the fact that there's the talent to, to uh, promote that stuff, and that then an audience grows for it. I, I get worried that the idea of innovation for innovation's sake feels to me like a dead end. Um, Can I just add into that, yeah. Christopher? Even at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the great impresario, Serge Diaghilev, who brought the Ballet Russe and the, the uh, opera to Western Europe, he said at that time, you cannot make he was interviewed, you cannot make a career out of innovation because you're going to run out of ideas very quickly. I believe, as somebody who is one of the creators of productions and creators in opera, that our job, is, as Christopher was saying, is to use the canon of work that we have to inspire us to the new. We, I don't know if what I'm doing is innovative or new or anything like that. I think very much it's in the eye of the beholder. What I count as artistic for you might be a pile of crap. And equally, I've sat there in performances, as I did several times this year, watching stuff with people saying, isn't this extraordinary? And my answer was, yes, you're damn right, it's extraordinary, this shit hit the stage. <laughs> so that opinion is- I was really leaning into the yeah, I know, I know. for Colorful dirty language. language. So you, I'm happy to give you dates, performances, and places if you want to tell us where those were. Um, so, 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 then, so then the question stays with you, Paul. Uh, if, if, can we just keep redoing Bohem? Can we just keep redoing Figaro? Like, is there, it, I understand that there are stalwarts and that they are huge, they're seminal pieces of art, right? We can't, Lulu is Lulu and it's extraordinary. But like, we need to keep making those and it, and yes. it right? Yeah, but let me, give you, let me give you an analogy. I was in uh, Florence earlier this year at the Maggio doing The Flying Dutchman. And I went um, very late at night when it was pr practically empty to the Uffizi galleries and I looked at a lot of the paintings. So I was, uh, I'd always avoided the busy rooms, the Botticellis. And I went and I looked at the Botticellis and it was towards the end of the day. Something happened that really, really struck me and it was this. Looking at La Primavera in the light of the room that was in there, all of a sudden when daylight came into the room or a cloud went by, La Primavera changed. It was the same painting seen in a different light. Then the cloud went past and it was bright again, then another cloud and a little more misty. The same five, 600 year old painting I saw in three, four, five different ways in the same 30 seconds. Totally, wow. 
And I would just add to that that um, another analogy, which is speaking of, let's say, Figaro or whatever, you know, uh, uh, it's almost, for me, the same question of, even though I've heard the role of Susanna sung 9,042 times, um, would I still be interested if some unbelievable soprano decided to interpret it for me? A hundred percent, I would listen to it, you know, a thousand more times for a thousand different singers. So I think that, um, I think that, that uh, the same thing can be said for, you know, not just the role of the cast, but the role of the director and um, designers. I think that, you know, reinterpreting... And the piece itself. Yeah. And just the piece itself. But, but also the, the way that, I mean, you, I mean to, to Paul's metaphor, you wouldn't, you, you don't want to put away the Botticelli because popular taste says that Jeff Koons is more popular. Ideally, you, you want to actually show that there's a lot, you know, that there's there's a trajectory of development here. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's plenty of um, anxiety in this room about Philip Glass. We've had this conversation before. Yeah. But the proximity of Monteverdi to Philip Glass illuminates both works. Part of the pleasure of putting an, an opera together and season together is to think about the ways in which the light on that Botticelli is changing, the way in which you're receiving the Figaro because the cast is different, because the production is different, because it's proximity. You just heard Clemenza the season before, and now it's changing your opinion of it. Your, your tastes are changing, the world around it is changing. That masterpiece is not, is not static. It's, and also, it's, it's worth revisiting. That masterpiece was new once. Everything that we do, everything that we revive, was once a brand new piece that had never been heard. Imagine the scandal in Prague, the scandal when Don Giovanni premiered and a D minor chord was heard for the first time with a full orchestra. People were outraged. It was written about in the newspapers. There were drawings about it, the scandal that this caused. That was a brand new work that nobody liked at that time. Bizet's Carmen, nobody liked it at the beginning. Bizet never saw it as a success. It was a disaster. So we have to keep, if the work is popular, if the work is liked, even if it's disliked by some people, if you have faith in it, and you interpret it for your own generation. I cannot interpret Don Giovanni for the 18th century because I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> I don't know what it was like in the 18th century, but I know what it's like today, and I know what it was like 20 years ago and 30 years ago and even 40 years ago. So we have to take, I think it's our job, as with that Botticelli, is every time a different light hits that work, it's our job to shine the light. It just happens to be a different light with every generation. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary metaphor. Uh, uh, that's what you're here for, Paul. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm glad, and thank you, good night. Yes, yeah, thank you, good night. Yeah, go have a glass of wine. I, 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 sure, everything you're saying, I, I, I absolutely, but to play devil's advocate, but also to really feel this way, this summer at Bard Festival, the Summerscape Festival, uh, who Josh Winograd is the new casting director for there. Um, he was nice enough to hire me and my wife to sing there. And uh, we, we did Das Wunder de Heliana, which, uh, heard of it? Probably not. It's a corn gold piece. It's, uh, you know, all that it, people know about corn gold is Die Todestadt, but Heliana is this incredible piece. It has this, it has this seminal, huge aria for the Heliana in the middle of the second act, which is sort of the only piece that made it into popular culture. And what was amazing that I had never experienced in my life, uh, my, sh my short life, I had never experienced this. I had never experienced an opening night where people walked out and they were like, 
uh, it's so anti-feminist. And then from across the room we heard, You're, you didn't see it right, it's totally a feminist opera. And, and there was this huge argument in, in, the, in the hall uh, at the opening night party, and they were like, well, what did you think about the piece? And, and it was this intense, I mean, rather, people, you know, there was a lot, there was alcohol was flowing at the opening night party, but people were very aggressively critiquing the piece, and the people that loved it, loved it, and the people that hated it, hated it, and they were surprised genuinely by the ending. And I thought, it was just a different, it's impossible to describe, but it was a different energy in the room after people had saw this piece that had been unearthed, and who weren't familiar with it that walked in as opposed to an opening night after a Figaro or an opening night after, a, 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 sorry to keep using Bohem, but, but, yeah, but do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, except that, you know, I mean, the conversations that I heard after the dress rehearsal of, <laughs> of sure, this Bohem sure. and the conversations I heard after opening night of this Bohem, I mean, uh, it would be hard, I think, to find consensus even in this room sure. about, about Barry's uh, Bohem. I don't think this is a referendum. Look, we all spent a lot of evenings in opera houses, and it can be the worst, most enervating experience you can have <laughs> in, your, in your life. Um, and yet, you've had that really wonderful, totally spiritual, transcendent experience, and you're looking for that high over and over again. Um, it, it's, it's the flip side of the same coin. The, the qualities that make an opera potentially great can also be the ones that can make it the most deadly experience in the opera. That isn't necessarily about the piece mm -hmm. or even about the singers. It may just be about your mood or maybe about the acoustics in the house or it may be about the meal you had or the mood that you're in. Yeah. Um, none of that for me is a referendum on the greatness of the work or the sense that a season has to be full of novelty in order to be interesting for an audience. There's, you know, we're a pretty rarefied group of people. You know, 99.9% .9 of the population has never even heard of Bohem, never mind heard Bohem. Sure. And we have a responsibility to those individuals as well. But then a whole crowd of other people have heard of Bohem through Rent. Yeah, right, which you have I, to deal with. Right. I don't like Rent. I, don't, I was asked to be the uh, revival director 25, 30 years ago when I started my career in London by the, the then director of it, who, to quote him, when I went for my interview, he said, I don't give a shit who does this. I thought, oh, thanks. That's, that's a real... <laughs> Ringing endorsement. Ringing endorsement. Ringing endorsement. Oh, Am absolutely, I talent? baby. You better believe it. But Rent and, for example, Miss Saigon are both modern interpretations of La Boheme and of Madame Butterfly. They reach a new audience. My partner, my husband, loves Rent. He doesn't understand why I can't bear it, because I just can't bear hearing that guitar thing happening time and time again. <laughs> but I will say, despite my like or dislike of it, I love and respect the fact that it's taken La Boheme forward into another generation, another crowd of people that will like it. I was previously the artistic director of the Norwegian National Opera. I forgot to mention that in your bio. You did. He was. He was. 2007 yeah. to 2011? Forgiven. Never be forgiven. For I know. That. Disgrace. I know. You were general director. How did you I didn't mention that? I was a dancer either, but that was maybe wise. <laughs> it's very wise. Yeah, many years and many, many pounds ago, I was a dancer. At the Norwegian Opera, we had a similar problem as you guys have here. Where the hell do we get new audiences? How do we get people into this? into this theater. And I met a group very much like you guys here 
who were our opera guild, and one of them said to me, what, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I need to be honest with you. I need your help because it's real simple. You and me, we're all dying. We're not going to be here in 30, 40 years. So who is? Who are we passing it on to? And how do we do that? The idea of, is it relevant? Who gives a shit if it's relevant? La Boheme's relevant to everybody. Great, big deal. But you might have somebody that comes in and hears Don Giovanni or hears Onegin or something and is hit by something else that may or may not be relevant to me but is relevant to them. My answer to it was to ask for their help, which I did, and also then I thought my biggest enemy at the time was the internet. I turned it into my biggest friend. I turned it into something that I said, I have to use this in a way that I don't have the same attention span as those that are 30 years younger than me. I just don't, I have a longer attention span. But theirs is click, interested, no. Click, interested, yes. So I had to actually embrace that. Um, I felt like such an idiot doing it, to be honest, at the beginning, because I didn't really understand their culture. When they get in a computer and they go, and I'm like, oh, what? I didn't get that. But it worked. This, the two pieces that sold out, the two pieces that really sold out at the Norwegian Opera, the biggest sales in percentages we had, if you can believe it, were Lulu and The Rape of Lucretia. The third one was Rosalka. How did we do that? I just turned them into stories that people in their 20s and 30s would understand. Who doesn't understand the plight of the rape of Lucretia? It's not about Lucretia, really, it's about him. How do we discuss? So we took it to a conversation about men controlling themselves. That went on the internet, it went on podcasts like this. I would do an audience survey, I'd talk to the audience in the intermission. That started something different. So for you guys here, that you've got this challenge. I don't run a company anymore, so I don't need to worry about it. You just pay me. It's great. <laughs> but you have this challenge of who is the new generation and how do we get them into the live event? Well, you know, that's, an, that, that's something that I wanted to mention because um, we've, we've done a, spent a lot of time defending tradition um, and defending repe you know, existing repertoire. But I have to say, interestingly enough, I think we would all agree that we're also living in a time in which innovation in music theater in general has never been... Um, more diverse and more exciting. I mean, I think that technology has something to do with that. I think that it also has to do with, um, we all are all aware of uh, groups of artists making their own things work um, because, you know, for financial necessity, but also artistic necessity. And so I think we live in a time in which um, innovation has, in this, in our business, has never been higher. Sure, I, so, so I guess then the question is, Oh, then the question is, uh, so, so Christopher, when you sit down, you know, to, to plan a season and are you going to bring in Paul to direct this and you're going to do this new production and equally, Josh, when you talk, start thinking about, uh, you, you know, what are you going to do off grand and what are you going to do in those spaces and Beth Morrison projects and that kind of thing, do you, do you sit down and think to yourself, okay, uh, so George Clooney always says, one for them, one for me. You know, that's his big thing. Do you think about that? I mean, do you think like, oh, let's bring in this new bohème so to service, in service of, you know, you're a DJ in the, in the spring? Or do you think, again, LA, I must say, is the redheaded stepchild in all of this, which is a quote I'm stealing from someone said tonight. We are 
and, and this is not just me being a homer, we are the most innovative opera company in America in terms of pushing forward new productions and doing Beth, stuff with Beth Morrison and stuff. So it's, it's more of a question for you know the, the David Gockley types, but it, it would certainly, do you think about planning a season in that way? Sort of like, let's do, you know, if we're gonna do Bohème, then we're gonna be able to do this other thing, or do you just try to put an eclectic season together? That's a long question, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, every, everything is about balance. It's about balancing uh, the finances. It's about balancing uh, a repertory plan over a number of years. As I have talked about, I think probably endlessly, it is impossible for us to fully represent the contours of the canon over the course of one season. So I tend to think about them over the course of many seasons. I'm very attracted to multi-year programmatic threads. I'm attracted to thematic programming. I think our audience really responds to context, which is how you come up with the kind of festival models that we use. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, I mean, in my mind, we're, we're looking for balance. We're looking for balance of the familiar and the unfamiliar. Um, we're looking to, to, you know, the reason why the Toscas, the Butterflies, the Bohems come back on a fairly regular basis is because that's the way to attract the largest possible audience. And you want to do that even as you're at risk of enraging your subscribers, that, that you're doing it that often, in which case you're making a calculation of can you do a new interpretation of it that's going to get people to come back. I've said this to this crowd a lot, so I apologize in advance if I'm repeating myself, but I would say that over the course of my career, I have been worried about the fact that people talk less about musical values and more about dramatic values. They talk about storytelling. They talk about production aesthetics. The, the old model where you could invest in a production and bring it back year over year to Josh's point, and the audience would respond to the different interpretation of a different Susanna, a different count. You know, the audience isn't necessarily there for that anymore. Um, so to some degree, you're trying to create uh, novelty. Off-grand was really based on, to Josh's point, the fact that there was this unbelievable amount of innovation that was happening amongst a generation of creators that the opera company had no facility to be able to accommodate you know, you commission something for the main stage, and this is a four or five million dollar endeavor. And no one will have heard of the piece, and no one will have heard of the composer, and people will vote with their wallets, and it will be, it may be a noble failure, but it would be a failure. It would, it, we played at half empty houses. And this provided a whole new line of the business where we could provide opportunities for both artists to try their trade and also for audiences to discover us. It's been wildly successful beyond even my most optimistic sure, sure. Um, uh, expectations. That's a great word for it. Gotcha. And um, you gave Christopher Kelch a word. Oh, that's on tape, baby. He receives Record a round of applause. That, I think, huh? really. Um, but I should also say, uh, I'll say sort of defensively. Sure. Um, the the L.A. Opera audience, and this is bizarre, but it's true. The L.A. Opera audience for the main stage is uh, demographically not what you think it is. Yeah. It is economically, racially, more diverse than any of the other campus assets, and that includes Center Theater Group, which is unusual given what that repertory is. And, and the median age at the LA Opera is younger than, than the rest of the um, entities on the, on the campus. You know, we, we are invested in making sure 
because again, I think a lot about, opera is about a chain of stewardship. Mm. You know, I think a lot about how we're making sure that the people that are sitting in the chairs after us have an opera company to run. Um, but I also think that a little bit like the innovation question, the, the wringing of the hands about the graying of the audience is a kind of fetish that we have. A graying audience is a renewable resource. And so you want to provide as many opportunities for as many people to be exposed to this art form as you possibly can without, without to my mind, trying to create programming that is specific to a demographic, because that, that is a fool's errand. You're, you're not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you, especially if you think about this house, like you're talking like 3,000 people a show, six shows. That's a math, which I won't do, but it's a 18, lot of people. 18,000. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and that's a great expectation to have. I, but I think when it, you know, yes, it, 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 maybe it's an act of futility in and of itself to, to try to pick out a demographic and say, we're doing this for them and that for them. Um, but, you know, it's been so interesting moving to Germany and working there. Um, where we do, we do, we, we're, we're in Carlsruhe, which is a, a big city, but really it's the size of Mobile, Alabama. It's 450,000 people. My, and uh, we do 20 titles a year, which is insane. I mean, it's an insane, it's wild. And it's a very different art set up there. It's government funded. It, that's a different conversation that we will have off mic of whether that's good or not. But like, it, it you know, it's so interesting to do productions there because they just, it's just time to do Freischutz. So we do Freischutz and we do this crazy production and we get booed for 20 minutes afterwards. Uh, I mean, really, and, and the director says stuff like, I just need you to drool on a gata. And I'm like, with my real drool? And he's like, yeah, of course. What else would you do it with? Stage drool. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, get a lot of, I get a lot of weird productions there, but you do them, you do them because you have to do them because it's time. And in other words, they don't, they don't do you know, Bohem every two years, they do Bohem every seven or eight or 10 or 12. And by that time, they will have worked through the entire Puccini canon, including Il Tabaro and Lavili and all these like deep cut works. And uh, I don't know, yeah, deep cuts. And I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if that's more successful or not in terms of gaining new audiences. And maybe Paul, you can speak to that, but. I, but if, if we don't keep reviewing pieces, if we don't keep reinterpreting, if we don't keep rethinking, how the hell is, any, if we just do this, as Einstein said, if you do the same thing the same way and you expect the same result, a you're different insane. result, you're insane. Right, right, so right. we must look at them in a different way. Apart from anything, all the Mozart pieces that we do today, the pitch is vastly different today from what it was in the 18th century. Sure. So they're all singing lower than they were back then. We have to keep looking. A fascinating thing I saw in, in my first week in Norway, I was asked to present an award, the Hedda Gabler Awards, at the National Theatre, and it was for Best Young Director. Um, and I was in the green room, and there was a painting, a magnificent painting of a gentleman. This is the N Ibsen's Theatre, the National Theatre in Oslo. And the picture of the gentleman was from the 19th century, but he had his back to us. You didn't see his face. It was a full-length portrait. So I said to this guy, what the hell is that? That's bizarre. Even then, 2007, I was like, that's really weird. And he said, he was the first actor to turn his back on an audience and speak huh. in an Ibsen play. So when they did the portrait of him, they did it like that. And I thought, that's innovation. That's innovation. That guy <laughs> made that decision. For sure. He made that decision, and people supported him yeah. making that decision. And people hated it, and people booed and shouted and screamed. But he is remembered today 
over a hundred years later for exactly having his ass to the audience. That You're just, really filling the, the, the swear jar tonight. Yes. I'm, see? I'm, I well, love come it. on, catch up, boys. I love it. It's, I a, love it's it. a podcast. You asked the Scotsman to swear, for goodness sakes. Um, so, so, Josh, this is a question for you from the singing side. Um, do you, I, I will keep my own opinion out of this as a singer uh, and just ask the question because uh, I'm a professional. Uh, when, you, when you have to, when you have to, you know, when you see the score of a new opera, uh, and, and, you, and you see the tessitura, and for those of you who don't know, that's where, like, how high or low the pitch lies for the singer. And you see this, like, skyrocket high tessitura, and you, you think, oh, God, like, what are we going to do? And when you, when, you, when you offer, is there a difference in, in, in sort of planning a cast, you know, doing that whole sort of this, this person will work good with this one and the whole chemistry of it? Is there a difference in uh, the way you would do that for a bohem and a bohem's just getting shit on tonight, huh? But, or, or, or is it different when you look at a new piece? And how do you approach those two things? Well, I think, um, you know, th- there are artists that we all know of as having different strengths. And, um, and I think that one of the things that I find most exciting is that um, uh, there's a whole generation of young singers coming up with um, talent sets that are uh, different than previous generations. There are a lot of singers who have um, real expert new music experience. A lot of that, you know, generally we attribute to um, either good ear training or or just, a, you know, a good musicianship. But on top of that, a real stage savvy that's a kind of modern theater-based stage sure, sure. Um, aesthetic. Uh, you know, the thing that we say is like, um, oh, the director could get that person to do anything, you know, and and they would do it gung ho. You know, you want someone to swing in and sing their aria on a trapeze upside down. So some people just bring that skill to the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I think that you know when you're looking at uh, a piece with a tessitura that's a little bit you know non traditional or, or uh, um, I think that uh-huh. y- you just kind of know you have a bank of singers of artists in your head that 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 do that kind of thing well. The Tom Addis players. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I, uh, I. It, read an interview with a a composer that was talking about really enjoying feeling like um, the human voice was being brought to its limits, Um, which to me was almost like somebody saying, I really enjoy writing stuff for the piano that results in tendonitis. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's like an irresponsible (laughs) way of of doing it. So, um, you know, I think that there are people for whom that high-flying role you mentioned as an example might result in whatever the vocal equivalent of tendonitis is. Um, And then there are people who their physiology and their ear training and their vocalism just makes them kind of perfect for um, what I... I, uh, When I write notes about auditions that I'm hearing, I'll say, this person is great for a role that requires a trick. You know, yeah. and so there are certain people who just have tricks built into their system, and I think, um, you know, yes, the answer to your question is when you're casting for a new piece, um, it it's a different set of criteria you're using, or can be. That's yeah, absolutely. I know when I when, I mean, the answer when someone says like Josh says, "Hey, do you want to do this role?" You just say yes. That's the only thing you respond to that email usually. Um, but there's always those moments where you get those new scores and those new pieces, and you and you think to yourself, "Oh my lord, 
how am I going to do this? Um, yeah, no, that's it's 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 very interesting. So, I I want to. This is sort. I got. I pulled this Beth Morrison quote, and I want to say it, even though we've already covered it. Sort of to finish up, I because we're already at forty-two minutes. I told you it would go fast. I know it's amazing. Um, a lot of my one-on-one inter one -on -one interviews, because I don't have like a clock next to me, uh, go quite longer than planned, uh, which is always fun. But Beth Morrison said, who I don't know if you know or not, we do a lot with her. She's a, a new music innovator, new uh, new opera producer. Um, she said at the Opera America conference last year, uh, she said the only place that should be doing Okay, this, this is gonna be fun. She's the only place that should be doing uh, standard repertory opera in, in the United States is the Met. I think it's very interesting that she would say that, and of course she's, she's hyperbolic in her saying of it, which I think is really interesting, but... but <sighs> so the Met should never have premiered Fanchula? Well, no, I think, the, I think the whole point is, is like, uh, again, for innovation think, for innovation's yeah, sake. I, I, knowing Beth as I do, I, th I think she said that to be purposely provocative. Oh, 100%. I think that she, yeah. she too agrees with the idea that your experience of Ellen Reed's Pulitzer Prize winning Prism... Totally. Which we it, premiered. <laughs> yes. Sneak it in there. Is enhanced immeasurably... Like an audience going into that for the first time could have a perfectly reasonable experience of it, but if they knew something about the bel canto tradition of singing, my argument is that actually the experience is much, much, much richer. So when you find this, the Venn diagram of the people who know um, bel canto singing and they know club music, you know, and there's a couple of people in the room who, for whom that's that true. But what's that Venn diagram is a very small crossover, I'm just is it saying, not? I'm just saying that... You know, our, our sound guy, Martin, might be the only one in the center true. of that. I, there's a few people in the room for whom that's true. And, and their experience was deeply enhanced by that set of knowledge. Now, you didn't need it to have a great experience of sure, that opera, sure. but it helped. It, it is the dialogue between the generations, between composers, the influences that you hear... That's that's part of the huge pleasure of any aesthetic experience. That's the huge pleasure of going to a comprehensive museum. That's the huge pleasure of, of eating food, of drinking wine, of understanding how this piece fits into the the trajectory of human exploration of uh, the condition in extremis over time through generations. So I know why she probably can assume why she said that in that context. I don't actually genuinely believe that, that no, she I think, believes I that. No, I think she said it for the same reason that I said it here tonight, which was to be provocative and stir on a conversation. But I think, you know, I, listen, I, I don't, uh, do this, I want to say this? Company, this company is committed to doing a contemporary masterwork on the main stage in every season. Um, sometimes that works out for the audience, sometimes it doesn't. Can you define contemporary? Like, what does that mean for you? 1950, 1920? Uh, no, that would be modern. But, I mean, okay. we... Uh, I'm trying to think, since, since we've done it, have, we've done... I'm trying to think if I've cheated yet. I don't think I have. Have I cheated? I don't think I've cheated. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, 1970 sure. and, and forward. Okay. And, and that, that really is about, you know, there's... This conversation's got a sort of weird way, but um, we have a responsibility to the canon from Monteverdi onward. 
and onward includes we have a responsibility to making sure that pieces that were not canonical 20 years ago could be considered canonical now. I mean, the whole, the whole project of the Philip Glass trilogy was about, was about re, re, making a case that that piece could be reasonably considered, or those three pieces, could be considered to be canonical going forward. But do you feel like you're do, don't you feel like you're doing the piece, uh, the new piece in question? I don't know. Like it's, if, if, if I'm a new music composer, if you'll allow me to speculate, if I'm a new music composer and in my same season, like Matt O'Coin this season, his new piece, which is going to be brilliant. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be a great production. But like, you know, you think about he's in the same year as Roberto Devereaux, La Boheme, you know, in Magic Flute. And, and for me, like if you're putting them what you're basically saying, and this is how I see it, if you're basically saying, okay, here are all these pieces, and they're on this level. They're masterpieces of their, their generational, seminal pieces of art and, and literature and culture in that given period. Then you're saying, so is this piece. But you know that's I mean? not a complete given. For example, I, I, okay. for exa no, but for example sure. at the Paris Opera, at the Paris Opera, it was, what was his name, um, uh, that ran the Paris Opera that died, the Belgian, uh, Mortier. Mortier. Mortier said of Puccini, said of Puccini that Puccini was a third-rate composer and would never be performed in Paris. Was barred, from the house. was barred from the Paris Opera. So here's a man of the 20th century saying that Puccini's crap. And many people at Puccini's time might have thought Puccini was crap. And he then would do other things. So what you're saying is I don't think we can say these are accepted by all as masterworks. But we've decided that they're in the canon, right? We've decided that like but Magic the, Flute no, is in every three-year piece. The canon the, the, comes the, and goes. The canon comes and goes. I'm actually not sure what fight we're having here. Yeah, me neither, the, but it's fun. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Who decides the canon then? That's the, that's the, the great final question. Like, why, why Bohem instead of... I why decide instead the of, canon. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Wrong question, yeah. but, Nicholas. But, but why, you know what I mean? Like, why, why flute, not Clemenza? I mean, watch them both together and you'll know immediately. But, like, why, why... Rude. That, rude. <laughs> well, why Manon Lescaut? Why Bohème and not Manon Lescaut? Why Bohème and not Lavili? Why, you know... Because why? it's our job to provoke the conversation. It's our job to come up with a brave idea that says, I'm going to do this piece and do it this way. And the risk is you might like it or you might loathe it. But why can't that Keep piece be Manon? Why can't Keep that piece be Manon Skull instead of Bohem? Easily. But <sighs> you might need to go to another theater, but you can't you only have a limited there's only three hundred and sixty five sure. days in a year. Sure. I mean there's only so much yeah, time I, I, and money. I, there's some there's some foundational anxiety that you're expressing here that I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite is, sure either. Okay. okay. <laughs> no. As Christopher said earlier. Yeah. The Baroque that we have, all this Baroque opera we have today that is enormously popular all over the world, if you go back to the 40s, 50s, 60s and before, and way down to the beginning of the 20th century, almost nobody, other than at the Gutingen Festival in Germany, had heard of Baroque opera. Handel was almost never, ever done. Mm -hmm. It was really the Gutingen uh, Festspiele and Raymond uh, Leppard who brought it out of retirement, who started to bring those pieces forward. Think of the bel canto repertoire. Who was the big, big innovators of the bel canto repertoire, which had fallen away in favor of Puccini, Leon Cavallo, sure, and all those sure, people. Sure. Lily Pons, eventually, Mireia Callas, Gui, those conductors, Sutherland, all those people. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But that's people being brave, saying, I think Anna Bolena needs to be heard. 
I think Annabelle Aileen is a masterwork has to be done. I think Ariodante has to be done at a time when people said, are you kidding? We can't do that old-fashioned stuff. So to answer your question, I think it's up to people like Christopher and Joshua to decide what can be brought forward, what we need to show to people, and hope that what we throw at the wall, some of the paint sticks. Remember, to paint the Mona Lisa, there's a hell of a lot of paint on the floor. Sure. I think that's great. Well, the fact is that, you know, you're, if you could do an entire season, I, th I think there's a real danger in feeling that, because, you know, maybe I'm bored with Bohème, because I spent my whole lifetime with it. Totally. But that, I'm not going to impose my boredom on, on the audience, right? So you're, you're, looking, you're looking for... I'm not bored with Bohème, by the way. But, um, but I'm, if you I'm were, no hypothetically speaking, right, of yes. course, yeah, yeah, right. That, that, you know, our responsibility is to the, uh, ideally to the totality of the community and trying to keep subscribers and supporters, you know, who are at the core of that in mind in, in, in bringing them um, a balance of the, of the new and the familiar. Um, and, you know, m money is a, is a factor. Totally, totally. I think that's great. I, I want to be respectful of y'all's time. We're at 51 minutes. We went a little long because things got very excited. Uh, we just had a, uh, an argument in which we didn't know what we were arguing about, which is perfect. <laughs> exactly how I wanted it to be. Um, so now I'm gonna, I am going to walk around and uh, you get the mic. So just uh, uh, if you have any questions for these three guys who are the three most important, three of the most important people uh, in, in opera, it would be great. Um, so we'll just do like a quick 10 minute Q&A. So I'll come around, I saw your hand first, I'll come right back to you. Hey. Christopher, yeah. Leon Cavallo's La Boheme can be done here. It's a wonderful, wonderful opera. It, it really is. When I do a lecture, I do it on both because it's worth doing. You just need a Rodolfo who's a baritone. That's really what you need. I often, uh, th this is coming up, there's a, there's a Santa Fe opera has commissioned an opera of the uh, play M. Butterfly. And uh, I, th I think about this, and I think about this in, in relationship to the Leon Cavallo Boheme is the um, confusion in the marketplace and, and how, much, how much the marketing department would want to murder you <laughs> if you if you programmed a different bohem how you would do that but yes i admire the work yes you just got to find a really small font and put leon cavallo at the bottom left hand i got it i got it it's that easy yeah hi my name is raed and i'm a fellow bass roll tide <laughs> great job in bohem by you're amazing um Did you hear that he said it was amazing christopher josh you hear that? um uh, i just bought tickets to watch Vote of one <laughs> I just bought tickets to watch uh, Christina Aguilera in Vegas, her new residency. And I have a, like five 20 year olds coming with me. And then I think to myself, why didn't you come with me to Bohème last Saturday? I mean, it's the same thing. And sometimes, I, I, I don't know, this might be um, a, a blasphemy to talk about, like we can curse, but we cannot say use microphones. I guess that's the, the, the word that you can't use here. Um, uh, but they, the, the experience of something like that is way louder than the experience of opera. And many of my friends who are just don't know anything about opera, they're always telling me that the opera experience is quieter, but I'm like, I swear they're singing way louder than Christina Aguilera is, I promise you. So my question is, I mean, I know opera singers use microphones in like larger venues, parks, and also on the Met HD when they go and watch that, it's a louder experience by decibel. 
Um, and would LA Opera ever think, or I, I don't know what uh, it would be like to have one night of just full, fully. You, yeah, you mean like a, you mean like a rock concert? I, I I can answer, even though this question wasn't to me. I can tell you that uh, it, it's an absolutely fair question. I think. I think that uh, there are a lot of new operas being written that involve sound manipulation, and you can talk to Martin, my sound guy, he'll tell you all about it. He designs a lot of those shows where they literally use effects pedals through voice in real time to tell stories. I mean, it's very interesting, very cool. The, the, the thing that we are so, as opera singers, the thing that we are so afraid of um, is that that, uh, uh, that is what makes what we do particularly special, is that we sing unamplified over an orchestra into a huge space like the Dorothy Chandler for 3,300 people. And that in and of itself, if you know how sort of, if you know how difficult that can be, if you go stand on the Dorothy Chandler and you look at it and you're like, holy cow, that is why that is such a cool athletic feat. And so I think that's why a lot of opera singers, we train our whole life for that level of projection. Um, and, and, and instead of thinking, I, I would encourage you, instead of thinking about it sort of like, you know, rock shows are loud and awesome, and opera singers, you know, are, 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 are singing unamplified and maybe not in some cases. Um, I would encourage you to think about it as two totally different spectrums, right? And what, and what Christina Aguilera does is she is incredible. She's an incredible artist, and she does these unbelievable runs, and she's a, a, a great artist. She does a different thing than we do completely. And so I would encourage your friends, I think that this is where... Uh, an education curve comes into play. And it's really easy to go to a rock show and it's really easy to watch Christina Aguilera who uh, admittedly looks better than I do on stage singing and dancing. And uh, it's really easy to be very attracted to that um, on, a, on, a, on a certain level. But I think opera has a little bit of a learning curve. So I would encourage you, you know, tell your friends, oh, these people are singing on Amplified. And they're like, what? Because a lot of people don't realize that. You wouldn't believe the people that I bring to opera with me who, uh, who, who are like, oh, yeah, that was fine. And I'm like, well, you know, no one's Amplified. Like, everything you just heard, like when you heard a Pretty Yende is a great example. Pretty Yende's voice is about this big, but you can hear it uh, in Calabasas, you know? And it's because she has figured out this perfect technique. She figured out, LA reference. Uh, you figure out, she's figured out this perfect technique and this bell-like thing. And so what she's doing... In, is, is a total different thing. So that's what I would encourage you, Paul, also. I, w I would add two things to that. Sure. The, the, this Dorothy, uh, I keep calling it the Dorothy Parker Pavilion. The Dorothy Parker. Because <laughs> I think that's got a certain edge to it <laughs> at the Dorothy Parker. This wasn't built as an opera house. This was not built as an acoustic space for an opera house. Opera came in here afterwards, yeah? And apparently Miss Dorothy Chandler would have been none too happy that the LA Opera took it over. But my point is, Opera houses in the United States, if you think of the Metropolitan, Chicago, San Francisco, here, etc., are all actually rather too large. If you look at the opera houses in Europe that these uh, pieces were written for, nearly all of them are much smaller. Take a, piece, a place like the Fenice. That is an acoustic experience. Yeah. I did Tristan and Isolde there last. Totally. That will blow your head off. So it's relative to what that is. One other thing I'd say. The beginning of my career, I spent years doing educational tours, taking singers like Nick around, singers like Josh around on educational tours at eight o'clock in the morning in schools all over Great Britain. Woof. The minute people like these two opened their mouths, these kids would go, shit, what? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Grade school kids would so yell, shit. It's, it it's was a, great. Yeah. It was, a little bit different back then. It's yeah. an experience, I would say, that is relative to 
the environment that you're seeing. It totally. In. And, and the house that I work in in Germany full time, my wife and I are members of the ensemble there. Um, and uh, it's 1,100 seats versus 3,300. And so the acoustic phenomenon, it, it is extraordinary to me. It's, it's huge and it's so loud and it's, it's overwhelming. And it's wonderful. It's amazing to me that the Dorothy Chandler, like that you can hear anything. Like you sit in founder circle and you can really hear people. You sit in the balcony, you can really hear people. And so that to me is the human feet part of it. Like you go to this cavern is crazy. The first time I sang in the Met, uh, name drop, I was singing, I was standing on the stage and I started singing and I was like, oh my God, like this works acoustically, which is so extraordinary. So uh, yeah, I, I go see opera in Europe and- uh, Or take yeah. them, I mean, take them to any one of Beth's shows. They're really too loud. Yeah, you can go to any Beth Morrison project show. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, go see Aquanetta when you get a chance. Uh, uh, anyone else, questions? You have a question, yes. I'm running because I don't want to take too much time. I've been to the Paris Opera a couple of, a few times. One of the things I noticed was that there were quite a number of teenagers on dates. And it really pleased me very much because I think that, you know, so much of appreciation is based on, you know, having a peer group. What can we do about that, you know, in general? So they, uh, the, the Paris Opera started a pretty aggressive pricing program uh, specifically to um, attract uh, that demographic, and it's been uh, wildly successful beyond their um, expectations. expectations. Yes. Got it. That's what I'm here for. It's like that part yeah. of the brain. It's yeah. like a. I'm here all night. I'm here all night, baby. <laughs> Could we start the first Tinder for Opera group? Yeah. Make an app. Sure. Take Absolutely. your friend to the opera. Absolutely. I. I I'll answer one of your questions, sir. Yeah. And what we did in Little Norway. When I took over the Norwegian Opera, they did six titles a year. And the first year, I moved that to 17 because I had three theatres to fill on a nightly basis. One of the things I did was, back then, I would take selfies. And I hate a selfie. And I especially hate, you know, having to see it afterwards. But I took <laughs> selfies with people in the audience. That started to go online. He was when dressed as Christina went... Aguilera. <laughs> <Yes>. Right, right. <laughs> you saw the wig. That's what's missing in your Christina performance. That... The shoes are great. The wig's terrible. I know. Take I do my best. Off. I do my best. But what we did was we then put that out onto the internet. Here's what I would say truly about this thing of how do we get these young people in. We need to stop being old farts and thinking old time, a newspaper article, a flyer, stuff like that. They don't do that. My husband's 20 years younger than me. Everything he does in his life is on that damn phone. Everything. He doesn't order breakfast. And I, he'll do it on the phone. So the minute you get into that, which is what we did nearly 10 years ago uh, uh, in Norway, and it worked because they were going, click, oh, there's a young person. We also, because we were a state-owned theater other than you, my job was to use money and spend money that was given to me by the government. So I had to have, as part of my, my remit, I had to have cheap tickets for young people. It worked, and it worked for this reason. They were interested in the stories and the event. That's what buzzed them. Well, and at every dress rehearsal, this one was this one was exactly the same. At every dress rehearsal, it's always so interesting here at LA Opera because we have an amazing education uh, department, and they do such a good job of inviting. How many kids were at the dress rehearsal? Six hundred kids. Six hundred kids sounds like seventy thousand adults. I don't know if you. I mean, when you bow, you feel like a rock star, and and so. 
that's a, what a lot of American companies do is you invite them to the dress rehearsal. In, in Germany, we invite young kids to see actual rehearsals, like working rehearsals, which depending on who the, the t tyrannical director might be or not, uh, it can be good and bad. Because uh, wow. rec recently there was a, a blow up in the rehearsal and there was 215 teenagers sitting in the balcony for the whole thing. Uh, but I guarantee you they loved it. Drama's fun. <laughs> Uh, so, so you never really know. So, so there are program after program here at LA Opera that is set up to encourage and to edify the the, the young people uh, to come in. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraged to to hear your Paris story. What's I would just say yeah. if I if I could wave a magic money wand. Totally. I mean, one one of them would would be to that every seat for every house would be twenty dollars. Sure. Part, part of it is that you have to get people into the habit of opera going. Not every night they're going to come, they're going to love. Right. But if they get into the habit of going, that it becomes as natural as going to a Christina Aguilera concert or going to In-N-Out Burger. That, that it's just a, it's, a, it's naturally integrated. The reason why you're doing 20 performances in Karlsruhe and that there yeah. are 750 trillion opera houses in op in Germany yeah. is because it's it's just it's as natural as getting up in the morning to go to the opera at night. And they know? just go, by the way. They don't. They don't. They don't. You know, they're obviously interested in productions and they're engaged, but they're like, they're like, what are we going? You know, the season ticket holders there. It's so funny because they they'll walk in not knowing what they're going to that night because there's so many posters outside. We're but doing 20 not operas. Paying, they're yeah. not paying the right. price of no. What was my the God. Last, what was the last concert you went to? The last one I yeah. went to was One Republic. Oh, yeah. I couldn't, but yes, Christopher Kelly. Yes. I haven't been, I haven't been Lapses to Lapses of yeah. taste, a rare lapse <laughs> yeah. of taste from Paul Curran. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I couldn't believe how expensive oh, it was. Oh, it's wild. It was, yeah. un people think opera's expensive? Mm -hmm. Try going to a Madonna concert. Forget yeah. it. You need yeah. a mortgage for that. Or Beyonce. But, oh. but kids will shell out for that. Try in the UK going to a soccer match. People will shell out for that soccer match. Our job, how do we get into that market? How do we say, hey, how about this? How do we get them interested? It's easy in Germany with a very cheap, it was the same in Norway, a very cheap subscription. Yeah. That's, as you say, Christopher, I think our most, ex our most expensive single ticket, which uh, I should not say in front of a bunch of LA Opera subscribers, but my, my, our most expensive ticket in, in Germany at our particular theater is 47 euro. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, which not yeah. even parking here. Yeah. So we'll do we'll do we'll do one more question and then and then uh, I'll close this out. Does anyone have one more question for the panel? Uh, no. Oh yeah. I'll, I'll come. Oh, you would be all the way in the back across the room. Golly. Make them work. Uh, cardio. Yeah. Cardio. Yeah. Keep at least going. It's, at least it's going. a podcast. No one has Think to see Christina me walk past. Think of Christina in a show. Yeah. Go for it. Hi, uh, Christopher, you spoke earlier about the musicality being the missing piece sometimes that doesn't get as appreciated. What do you see in terms of singers coming up in the coming years, any of those? Um, is there any breakout singers the way you had, you know, Maria Callas, Placido, Pavarotti, you know, um, Renee Fleming, you know, is, is there something that has to happen to maybe make the singers and opera practitioners more visible to increase the visibility of the art form or the popularity of the art form? I'm standing right here. Well. Like I'm the next caller, right? <laughs> no, 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 it's a great question, it's a great question. Uh, November Vanity Fair, Nick Brown. Yeah, that's me, baby, you better believe it, I'm locked in. Locked Yellow in. shoes and all. <laughs> um, I mean, to be totally honest, the, I mean, yes, of course, there are, 
there, there are all kinds of incredibly interesting singers that continue to emerge, and their artistry has greater depth than I think that we could ever have imagined. I mean, a, a breakdancing countertenor that's not a novelty act. I mean, a an inc an really incredible um, singer. That being said, in our totally atomized world, I mean, we were always a little bit niche and we've been pushed a little bit further to the side. Do I think that there's a possibility for a callus on a Dick Cavett show? It doesn't seem immediately possible at the moment, but y I mean, you kind of never know. Um, and it, I, don't, I don't think it's possible to, to engineer um, that. Um, I also don't know that it's super necessary or healthy um, to do that. Well, um, and to that end, uh, you know, you see, I, I just, I, you just scroll through Facebook uh, or you scroll through social, any social media outlet and there's always the next 10 or 15 year old uh, young opera star um, on, you know, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or do you guys have a Scottish, got, Scotland's Got Talent? We don't have a Scottish anything. Oh, right, 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 okay. Just, just wanted to, I wanted to give a shout We're out, looking you looking know? for independence here. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, we did give you Susan Boyle, I'll right, just say. Right, thank God. We'd be dead without Susan Boyle. So, so there's a lot of like young kids who come up, and like there was one recently who sang La Mama Morta, which is the hardest aria in the world from Andrea Chenier, and she was 10 years old. And so uh, this also lies with your microphone question. Um, you know, there is a maturity in which that you take, it takes it takes hours and hours of work and it takes it you have to do production after production and i think from a singer standpoint you know you as a singer you never feel ready so there's always a situation you know even like even even to do i've done six productions of coline uh this this will be my sixth and um and the first day you're like, oh, I'm not ready to do it at this level. And you're like, no, you are. And so I think there's a hesitation from singers to be that next person because there's like, you're never ready. And, and I often also will piggyback on your comment. I don't know that it's incredibly important um, in terms of like those musical values. Um, musical values within the opera house, within the opera production uh, are what I am concerned about. Because to be, to be completely honest with you, like, like, facade gone, uh, you know, the three tenors were incredibly important. Obviously, to me, they were incredibly important and, and to the whole world, but, you know, an outdoor concert mic'd up with half of a rehearsal before you sing doesn't always have the most incredible musical values. You know, I, I've done a lot of those concerts. I've done a lot of those sort of like crash, okay, you, I just know, I know how your aria goes, just follow me, you know? And that's, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice money, it's a nice venue, whatever, but those aren't always the highest sort of quality experiences. Um, so I would much rather a super well-rehearsed Tosca with Sajra Radnovsky that has been meticulously rehearsed for six weeks than I would rather hear Sajra Radnovsky do the Sajra Radnovsky show in an outdoor theater with a mic on her, you know, a Britney mic is what I call it, so, uh, or, or a Christina Mike, as it were. So, uh, I, great, I guess we'll finish up with that. Um, thank you all for coming out, it has meant the world to me, I really, really appreciate it, and thank you especially to our panel. Uh, brilliant, I don't know what we solved, but something, and, um, and uh, I just wanna tell you, I'll close with this, I think opera is the coolest thing on the planet. I have loved it since I first fell in love with it and I'll love it for the rest of my life. It doesn't always love me back, but that's okay. And uh, 
and you love it too, and that gets me super jacked, and that gets me super excited. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's it. Have a great one, and thank you to everyone that came out tonight. Enjoy it. Necessarily so. Well, what do 